Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtalk. Thanks so much for listening. Our latest chapter followed young David Bowie, or David Jones as he was then, as he struggled to find his place in the mod music scene of swinging 60s London. It was an exciting but also frustrating time for him as he fronted a lengthy list of R&B bands, so close yet so far from headliners like The Beatles, The Who, and The Rolling Stones. Today we're going to talk to one of David's closest friends during that crucial learning period, Dana Gillespie, the legendary British blues singer whose career spans more than 70 albums. In addition to originating the role of Mary Magdalene in the West End production of Jesus Christ Superstar, she also acted in films by iconoclastic directors like Ken Russell and Nick Rowe. Her new memoir, Weren't Born a Man, is a fascinating look at her astonishing life at the center of the entertainment scene in the 60s and 70s. It's filled with tales of wild times with Bob Dylan, Sean Connery, Michael Caine, and Iggy Pop, recording sessions with Elton John and Jimmy Page, and appearances on stage alongside Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. And that's not even the half of it. For anyone who dreams of traveling back to that very special time on this planet, I can't recommend her book enough. But back in 1964, Dana was just another teenage music hopeful, just like David. They shared songs, laughter, beds on occasion, and also the unforgettable experience of rising through the pop pecking order at a time when the Fab Four ruled the land. To begin, take me back to the mid-60s in London for a moment. The music, the nightlife. Can you set the scene for me walking through Soho? What was a night out in 1964 like? Oh, a night out in Soho was exciting. I mean, in 1964, I was 15. And in those days, Soho was everything that you wanted it to be. Girls in doorways, red lights, women hanging out of windows, low-life guys creeping about, um, music bursting out of every bar. Um, you know, there were, and there were great clubs. Of course, there was the Marquee Club which is where I first met Bowie. But, you know, that was very much the blues club with bits of jazz. But down the road was the Flamingo and the All-Nighter, all which went till about six in the morning, where people like Georgie Fame, who had his hit with Yeah, Yeah, would be playing. That was much more, slightly blacker crowd and more Purple Heart. So pill-popping was more at that club, um, whereas... If there was any at the Marquee Club, I don't think I actually noticed it. But I was already hooked on that area. In 1962, I decided I wanted to be a drummer for my profession. And I used to go to one of the main drum shops uh, down uh, 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 the street that has all the the um, theatres on it, Shaftesbury Avenue, and it was called Drum City. And I would get myself there and I would stand literally with my nose pressed against the window, drooling at all the fabulous drum kits in the window. 
And I took, from the age of 11 to 15, the job of a newspaper delivery girl. I nearly said boy, because boys nearly always did it. But And from that money, I saved up and I got myself, sadly, not a marvelous, colored, singly, fangly, dazzling drum kit. I couldn't afford that. I had to get a plain white one. Uh, a, a, the company was called Ajax. The cheaper variety is plain white. And with the rest of my money, I used to go every week to my drum teacher who was right in the heart of Soho behind something called the Windmill Theatre, which was the famous windmill that was called We Never Close. It stayed open all through the war. And it had sort of topless girls. I think maybe they had a G-string on. But in those days, the law was such that if you had your tits out, you weren't allowed to move. You had to stand like a statue. Not that I saw this, but in the next, in the same street was where Frank King, my teacher, gave me classes, or classes, it was just him and me. Um, anyway, so that was, you know, I just loved the area, and my life changed the moment I walked into the Marquee Club, because there were the Yardbirds playing, which is, of course, Eric Clapton on guitar, and I fell in love with the blues. I was already in love with the blues, but I didn't think you could see it live like that, and musicians playing with abandonment and just sweating and you know dripping on stage whereas everything on television in those days which of course was still black and white um nobody dripped they just all wore very normal suits and it wasn't that interesting so i was i my eyes were open to another world and that was absolutely fantastic and i never stopped going back to that club that was my hangout. I still managed to get to school every day. I never missed classes, but um, I never missed any time that the Yardbirds were playing. I'd be there. And it was one night, I think it must have been in 1964. It's in my memoirs. I've written the dates, but I'm bad with all kinds of numbers. But I think it was 64 that I went to see a band called Gary Farr and the T-Bones. And the opening act was uh, featured a young man with shoulder-length lemon blonde hair in a Veronica Lake hairstyle, although I think you're too young to know who Veronica Lake was. And um, on uh, when he walked on stage, this was David Bowie, but he was still called David Jones in those days. Um, and I uh, listened to the act. I can't remember a thing about their music because I'd come to see Gary Farr and the T-Bones. But afterwards, when the show was over and I was standing at back of the club, brushing my shoulder-length peroxide blonde hair as I wore skin-tight black leather jeans and a skin-tight top, and I was quite big-busted even in those days. Non-surgically enhanced, I hasten to add, because I'm really <laughs> anti-fucking around with nature. Um, this young man with his lemon-yellow hair came up behind me as I was brushing my hair, took the brush out of my hands, carried on brushing my hair, he leant forward and whispered, uh, can I come home with you tonight? And what could I do but say yes? <laughs> Very I forward. Took, I took, well, I was, but, you know, I've always lived by intuition. And sometimes when somebody says something to me about something, I don't know, it could be in a thing, my inner voice tells me what to do, and I knew it was the right thing to do. And you have to take risks in lives, uh, in your life, or... I mean, I didn't think of it as a risk. It just it seemed like an interesting thing to do. So he and I walked home from the club and uh, I smuggled him up to the top floor where my bedroom was. I, I grew up in a huge, quite fancy house right in the heart of London in a uh, very upmarket area called South Kensington Knightbridge. And um, I had a little single bed then. We squeezed into it. I can't really remember what we did. We did something because... I, mean, I guess we did, and he was two years older than me, so a bit more experienced than me. I didn't know anything. Um, but from that moment, our friendship was cemented, and so he used to sometimes walk me home from school, carry my ballet shoes, and he'd listen to my feeble attempts at songwriting. You know, I was very embryonic in my songwriting, but he was learning too, and we both progressed. We both played 12 guitars. Because if you're not that great a guitarist, if you have 12 strings instead of six, the sound is fuller, makes you sound a little bit better. And 
So I would, you know, that's my early entrance into the West, the West End of London. And this included a street called Tin Pan Alley, Denmark Street. And this was where all the music publishers were. And in this little street was a cafe that has a special plaque above it. Now, it doesn't exist anymore because some idiot is pulling all down all the interesting places of Soho. But in this cafe, Giaconda would sit all the musicians, the out-of-work musicians, tying with a cup of tea, hoping that if they sat there long enough, it was a street full of song publishers. And if they were doing demos in their basement studios and they suddenly needed a backing singer or a bass player, they'd come into the Giaconda and they'd shout, boy, have you got a bass player? And somebody would put his hand up and he would have a, a session, a gig. So this is where we spent a long time in the afternoon nursing our cups of tea. And it was in this little cafe that one day Bowie came rushing in. But he was still Jones, of course, and said, come with me. And he dragged me around the corner into a music store um, that sold records as well as instruments and, and pulled me into a tiny little booth. And he played me his first single on a kind of one earpiece, which is how you chose your singles in those days with great pride, and I never forget that moment of tears with his great pride. And within, well, within about a year, I got my first record deal, so I was able to do the same for him. There's nothing like the first record that you make, if that's your goal in life, it, it changes everything. We're so used to David Bowie, the icon, but what was he like in the mid-60s? Like, what was it about him that attracted him to you? Was he different than most people even then? Well, I, I mean, I come from a rather upper-class family, so I certainly ne- never met anyone working class. And, you know, television was pretty terrible, you know, as I said, in black and white. So when he said to me, come and meet my parents, which meant getting on a proper train, which I'd never done that on my own. I was 14. Um, I'd never been into a tiny working-class house before uh, to meet his parents who sat there in silence with the television being the main thing in the room, also very old-fashioned TV. When his parents went out, David turned to me and he said, "I want whatever it takes, I want to get out of this place. I never want to grow up like this. So he was already burning with an ambition to get out. So what he was really like was he was just like a, a guy with a, a musical dream. But I don't think any of us were dreaming about, well, in his case, conquering America or the world musically because it was it was beyond anyone's dreams. Even thinking about going on an aeroplane to America was beyond most people's ideas. It was you know, we could we we'd heard of Elvis Presley, but to get foreign records, LPs was quite difficult. Um but you know, he had a little band and he went from one band to another and we stayed always friends because because of the actual location where my parents' place was the house, uh, eventually, when I was 15, they moved me to the basement, which nobody wanted to go into because it was dank and dark and uh, damp. Uh, my parents said, oh, you can go down there and play your drums. And by this time, I got <laughs> my piano and I got my, I got a, some guitars and things. And I, at 15, I could paint it black and orange and red and, you know, hangings and incense was burning, a real hippie paradise. But I was still under the umbrella of my parents. But it was right near one of the top um, clubs or two clubs in London. So all the musicians would go to clubs if they weren't working or even if they were working there, they'd go and, you know, I I can remember evenings, you know, Rod Stewart, Long John Baldry, Ronnie Wood's brother Art Wood had a great band called the Art Woods, um, all these these great bands sort of that then turned into place people like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, bits of them, they all used to turn up there and it, or the kinks. And if they couldn't get home at the end of the night or were too, too drunk or, or couldn't get a train home or couldn't, didn't have a car, then, you know, why not go to the basement flash of Dan at where Dan lived, knock on the door and they would find refuge. So I was forever making great kind of, saucepans full of brown rice and vegetables (laughs) to kind of feed poor, starving, hungry musicians, which I used to do with all of them. Was this the Cromwellian Club? 
That's right. Well, that's right. Oh, the Cromwellian. No. And there was another one around the corner called Blazes, which I remember going in 1965. I went with Dylan to see uh, John Lee Hooker there. And so you thought one could see really good musicians in, these, in those days. It was fabulous. You mentioned all the, the bands that David was a part of, the Lower Third, the Manish Boys, the King Bees, and none of them cracked the charts and his solo material hadn't broken through. Was he s- discouraged in this time in the 60s or was he always pretty confident and just knew that the next thing that, that you know, he'd break through at some point? I don't think you, I, I can only equate it with how I felt because who can really know what goes on in somebody else's heart? But I, I never felt discouraged so you just keep on keeping on and I think Mm. he did the same too just getting a single out was great or seeing your name in the music papers or or going to a record reception and you get to say a few words to one of the music journalists so that your name is mentioned the following week I mean all of that was a, a tremendous buzz and we didn't assume that you were going to be instantly number one and I don't think David, he may have always had this yearning to be a star. I'm sure he did. But much more, he always had a yearning to be a songwriter. Both of our dreams was to be signed to a a songwriting publisher and get our our songs published. But in order for these songs to be heard by publishers, you had to sing the blasted things. So you had to be a singer as well. And... We didn't in England seem to have those things like you had in the, in New York, the Brill Building, you know, mm. where you have Carol King and everything writing all the songs. We didn't seem to have that. We just had Tin Pan Alley, where you hoped that you would find a publisher, which I indeed did try to publish. I think I even found one before David did. But we had kind of strange parallel careers because there were times when we were both out of work and we both went to audition for that musical hair. And can you believe it? We both got turned down. Um, so, you know, you just keep on keeping on until one day you hope that something clicks. But it, you're in the laps of the gods as to how or when it's going to happen. But you have your goal in front of you. And I think unlike this rather unfortunate condition, this what I call a sickness that's sweeping the modern world where everyone wants to be a celebrity and just in it for the money. In those days, nobody thought that it was going to last more than a few weeks. You just kept on doing whatever you could do. I mean, the Stones, or Mick Jagger's famously quoted as saying, oh, we'll give it a couple of years and then we'll get proper jobs. You know, (laughs) nobody had aspirations to suddenly become, you know, world stars because world stars didn't exist. We didn't know what was going on across the pond for a start. So who knows what was going on in his mind? He was always experimental. He was going to learn his mime with Lindsay Kemp. He was doing kind of funny little films. And I was going to dance classes and doing even odder films, in my case, usually with lots of cleavage falling out of bits of leather because they seem to always want big busted girls in these cave girl kind of roles, which I was quite happy to do. It had not all to do with music, but a gig is a gig and you needed to pay your bills. And I always refused to take uh, too much money from my parents. I mean, I didn't have to pay them rent because they owned the house, but, and that did make a huge difference. And as I said, I was always some, I lived at my parents' house in my own flat till I was 30. I never had to go and marry some ghastly man. I mean, I don't mean men are ghastly. I mean, I didn't have to marry for the wrong reasons to get, find somewhere to live. I always had somewhere to live. So in this place that was known affectionately, christened by Angie Bowie as the bunker, <laughs> um, that's why so many musicians used to turn up there. Um, so I had a kind of freedom, and he... I don't. I kind of vaguely remember him moving from place to place, but we always stayed in touch. I never expected to be the only girlfriend of him. I mean, the one thing I learned very early on is if you're going to be a musician, especially a lead singer and probably a lead guitarist, the one thing you've got to go out is go out and pull as many girls as you can. Otherwise, how on earth can you learn your craft and know what you're singing about? You have to 
learn to love and lose and fuck up and win and lose everything again. I mean, that's how you write songs. And uh, we were both just kind of getting on with our things. And he never really told me about his other girlfriends until he met Angie. And then he rang me up and he said, listen, I've met somebody I think you'll really get on well with. And he brought her over to my place. And the moment she walked to the door, we knew that we were instantly like soul sisters. I finally had somebody I could have a hoop with. She was the funniest, or she is incredibly funny. Um, but, you know, he always stayed in touch, especially if he needed some brown rice and vegetables, and occasionally the odd, as the British so quaintly call it, a shag. But I think, I, I, do, do you know what that expression is? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I never know. Well, we have to remember, of course, that English and American is a completely different language. We're worlds apart. But anyway, he 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 would ring up, and I mean, there is one occasion he called me up and he said, oh, I, I'm only 10 minutes away, and I've just written a song half an hour ago, and I think it's kind of interesting. Can I come around and play it to you? And he came over instantly and sat and played Space Oddity. So that's how much in and out of each other's pockets we were. And then, of course, he, I would go with him to the TV studios of Ready, Steady, Go, which was quite a famous TV show then. And it's where young aspiring musicians would go and try and network in their green room and hope that somebody would sign you on for the TV show. I don't think they ever signed David, but they signed me on for two shows. So I was doing that before him. But he was far better at networking than me. I just had to deal with all these kind of slightly gropey guys that rather than look into your eyes, look at your tits instead. But I kind of got used to that because that's how it was in those days. You have to laugh it off in a way. And, um, yeah. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bear Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen, and it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Did you have noticed that there was a separation between David Jones and David Bowie? Was there a division between the private man and the public persona? Or was, was what you saw what you got? Well, what I saw is what I got. Because when you know somebody from early teens, and, you know, he was mid-teens, then for me, even when he became iconic, galactic, 
you know, he for me didn't really change. Um, but of course, one I I didn't really see him after 1975 because he moved to America and I stayed in England. And but we he'd always said to me that the one thing that was lacking in his life, and of course it was my life too, was a decent manager. Up until then, most musicians call their managers damagers <laughs> because they you landed up in court with them, which of course is what actually happened. But this company that was formed was a company called Main Man by a fantastic guy called Tony DeFreeze. And, you know, Bowie and I had been searching, as I said, we both auditioned for hair and got turned down because we just needed a gig, any gig. I mean, not quite serving in tables, but any musical gig, anything that involved the, the music biz. And then one day I got a call from David and he said, I found the man who I think is perfect to be our manager. And he took me, uh, he and Angie took me around to meet this extraordinary, marvelous, um, large with big Afro haircut um, guy, Tony DeFreeze with a legal mind, who did the one thing I like in any man, but it's rare to find these days, somebody that puts their hand on, their sh on your shoulder and says, there, there, let me take care of this for you. And that's exactly what he did. You know, in the next five years, certainly the first four years when everything was going great, he facilitated everything that any musician would ever need, which is, you need these musicians? You can have them. You want that studio? Yeah. You want to go there? Yeah, let's do it. You want this outfit? Yes. He gave everything for David that David wanted. We both signed the same contract, which was, okay, a 50-50% cut. I didn't mind because, you know, 50% of something is, is better than 100% of nothing. So <laughs> I never quite understood why David went through the madness of all this dreadful legal wrangle at the end that he was by this time surrounded by other legal people who were saying, I can do better for you. And they all started whispering in his ear. But the first few years of main man were marvelous because we were in this mad circus. By this time, Bowie had brought in Mick Ronson on guitar. And before this, people forget that Bowie was quite a folky singer. I mean, he was quirky. He sang with this strange Tony Newley voice. For those that don't know who Anthony Newley is, he's, he used to be married to Joan Collins, but he had this unusual singing voice. And uh, um, so he used to really rate his voice and kind of copied his, this voice for quite a few albums. He kept this Tony Newley voice. And he acknowledged that he kept this voice. Anyway... We had the wildest of times. It was marvelous. May Man took hold of everything. DeFree said to us, all of us should move through life first class. If you want to create first class, you, you exist in first class and it comes to you. So we were all told that we must have an assistant, a personal assistant. I mean, I didn't really need one, but hey, hey no, I was happy to say yes. We had 24-7 limos, um, Whatever we wanted, we were in the best studios. We were in something called Trident Studios for weeks and weeks. I mean, either Bowie was in there doing his album or I was in there doing Weren't Born a Man. And occasionally our times would overlap. Of course, I was lucky enough to sing on his Iggy Stardust album doing the It Ain't Easy track, I remember. But um, he, was, he wrote this song for me called Andy Warhol. I'd never known why because I'd don't particularly want Andy Warhol art on my wall, but he seems <laughs> the rest of the world like that kind of stuff. And Bowie was far more taken with the New York scene than I ever was. So uh, he wrote this song for me. I think probably he wrote it and, and, and didn't really, you know, he thought, well, let Dana sing it. So he says he's written it for me. And then we, we took it in the studios with Ronson producing it. And if, if you listen carefully, you can hear Bowie playing his 12-string guitar and singing in the background. He was doing my backing vocals. But then he liked my version so much that he did another version on his album for the Hunky Dory album, which actually came out before mine was ready because I was still... I was stuck doing the... I was the original Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar, so I couldn't get to the studios every day. 
And so he finished his album before me, and he then took off for America with the free. And by this time, I got my own band, and we'd all moved to New York. And Bowie was very taken with this show called Pork that was sort of run by Andy Warhol's lot. It was an Andy Warhol show. And he was so taken with them that he he, he and DeFries decided to have all the people who performed in it to be the people that worked for Main Man. We had, had offices, number 45 Park Avenue. I was put in an apartment, 58th Street between 2nd and 3rd. That means read that as sitting in a distance from Bloomingdale, all bills were paid for. I had a great time. I mean, as I said, assistants, you know, um, and I'd been on the, I was signed to RCA, as was David. I was in my stockings and suspenders and mad, slightly brothel-looking clothing, and Bowie by this time had been on the front of his album wearing a dress. Well, men just didn't wear dresses, so... The whole company was quite edgy. And then they got Andy Warhol's lot to do my next album cover, which was called Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle. So we had a we had a good image. It was just sad that the whole thing fell to pieces. But let's face it, nothing lasts forever. So uh, I should have... Exp- I knew the House of Cards was going to go eventually, but I just didn't know when. And you were with David the night before the, uh, the, the the famous farewell concert at the Hammersmith Odeon in July 1973 when he retired Ziggy Stardust. How did you feel about that at the time? Did it seem like the end of an era or was it just an exciting new beginning and on to the next thing? I don't think it felt like either. It was just one of those ideas that Bowie had and DeFries always went along with Bowie's ideas. Uh, especially in those days. I mean, they were very much a team. You know, DeFries and he would work out things. I mean, and Angie, of course, was... People people really don't give Angie enough respect and acknowledgement for the amount of help that she did in those days. They were a real duo. If you went to a, a party, by the way, with David and Angie, it was Angie who would turn more heads than at David, he'd be kind of almost shy and retiring, well, until he got with the boys, and then he could be quite naughty. But, um, yeah, I knew about it, but it's just I, nobody seemed to think anything odd about it. Uh, nobody knew the reaction that was going to be either. I mean, you know, with people almost running out to slash their wrists when they heard this, because I don't think people realized what an impact Ziggy Stardust had made. I think DeFries did, and maybe Bowie had an inkling, but DeFries was the man that was able to see from above what was happening because he was the kind of coolest and the calmest of everyone. So, yes, I was there. I did know it was going to happen, but, you know, I don't say anything. If I, it, We knew it was not going to be announced till till it was announced. And it may have seemed like the end, but it was a new beginning. I don't think David wanna be, wanted to be locked in his own character but i've always felt that he's far better playing a character he was better at doing characters i mean tin machine that band that he had when he was finally sort of just going out to be a musician was never as good as when he was actually playing a part and of all his uh, incarnations i absolutely adored the diamond dogs show it was just it was very new york and it was very broadway I saw it many times when it went to, I think, it, where was it, Hollywood Bowl or somewhere. It was brilliant. And by this time, DeFries had already okayed, you know, Jules Fisher, who was the top lighting man in all the Broadway shows in New York. But we had, there were dancers. Everything was just incredible. So uh, it was a... It was it was an exciting time. Um, the poor British never even got to see the Diamond Dogs show, and it was far too expensive with its moving stage and things that went up and down. It was the best show I've ever seen, probably even now. And I've seen many many shows. This was just phenomenal from its staging alone. And you know, David did something like eighty shows in eighty days. How he survived, I don't know. But he got thinner and thinner. And at the end of the tour, he definitely earned the title of the Thin White Duke. But he never once put on a bad show. He always was professional. It may not have looked professional, 
But, you know, I've always recognized in him the thing that I recognize in myself is that music is your master. Music is your God. Getting your songs across, getting some mad ideas across, that is the most important thing. And uh, he had that thing. I occasionally see it in others, not very often. And, and he didn't do it, thankfully, like younger people seem to want to only do stuff to for the money. Nothing was done for the money. You did it for the love, for the passion. And when you do things for passion, it takes you far further than you can imagine. It can take you further than your dreams can take you. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen, and it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer songwriter and composer John Batiste the all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Was there a moment for you when it became apparent that David was not only becoming a well-known pop star, but he was this gargantuan figure that really belonged to the world? Um, so I think in a way, his megastardom happened with, you know, things like Let's Dance and the songs that happened afterwards. And I, as I was not part of that, I really can't talk about it. So I don't or won't, can't. I, I, I can't talk about Bowie after 1975 because... He then moved into another world, and we didn't really stay in touch, mainly because he was somewhat pissed off that I'd always remained friendly with his ex-wife, Angie. And I'd never, ever believed that because two people split up, you've got to choose camps and choose one over the other. But geographically, it wasn't sound either, because I had a lot of work in Europe and not much took me to America. So... um uh, you know, but it was great that, that he was able to do what he wanted and he had a manager that agreed with what he wanted. I mean, how lucky both of us were. So lucky to have been in this kind of, this star uh, alignment was for five years just a joy. And the beginnings were great. You know, when... When DeFries and I would turn up in David and Angie's place where he lived in this place called Haddon Hall, which was a really bonkers, wild little place on the edge of London, it, it was really like family. And, you know, to hear the DeFries plotting and planning and David sitting there in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt 
strumming, sitting cross-legged on his bed with his guitar and scraps of paper in front of him as he wrote songs. I mean, they were great. They were great times. But they were also great when we all moved into the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in New York and seemed to stay awake for about three months. I mean, it's, it's good that we're all, you know, that, well, I was going to say that we're all still alive to tell the tale, but of course some of us aren't. The Haddon Hall days seem absolutely incredible. I mean, it seems like one of Gertrude Stein's salons or something. Exactly. It, it was a bit. It wasn't as kind of stoned as people would imagine. You know, David was never a fan of joint smoker. Um, I think I ever saw him smoke a joint. Um, and he was not much. I don't think I ever saw him take anything psychedelic. I saw him take plenty of coke. Um, and he was always a kind of almost a chain smoker. So it was not as druggy as you might have imagined the 60s would have been. But that, I think that's because work was the ethic. It was work. It was getting, writing your songs. I mean, you did whatever you had to do to get your production finished. Your, your, your music ha- is the first thing. If music is not the most important thing, then you're not in the right profession. That's my view, anyway. When was the last time you saw him? Do you remember? Mm, no, I can't, actually. Mid-70s, I guess, in New York. I can't... In America somewhere. I mean, the trouble is it was really painful for all of us. People can't imagine how close we'd all been for so many years. And he was famous for literally cutting out of his life Everybody, I mean everyone, who had helped him in his early years or had been part of his early life, he just cut them out. And I think he needed to do that in order to move on. And some people might have said that's not nice or, you know, especially probably Woody Woodmansey of the, uh, you know, the spiders might. They had reasons to feel quite hurt because they'd been cut out of his whole his whole life, where they'd been there, you know, helping him carry on. But it was always his show. So if you're the boss in a show, then it's your prerogative. If you want to cut someone out or drop somebody, that's that's what you do if you feel you need to do it. So um, it, it was just sad to see it ending, but he obviously needed to do it to move on. And he moved on in rather strange places. I mean, he made, was it the Low album? And, you know, when he was in Berlin. And so he had to do major changes. He had to break with everybody. But I think the one who probably, the two that suffered the most was obviously Angie for a while. But then Bronson, poor old Rono. I mean, he'd given up his life up north of England. Okay, it was only being, I think, a gardener in a, you know, he wasn't doing much, but he'd given up his dream to help David and then he tried to follow his own dream once David didn't seem to want him anymore Um, and it didn't really work out as big as he you know people thought he was going to step right in and be the guitarist version of Bowie and it didn't work out like that he was far too nice a guy you have to be ready to crawl over anybody in order to get to the top if that's what you want and I think Rono had almost too much heart in a way that's not to say that david didn't have heart but his ambition was phenomenally big and he he was on a stratosphere journey that he had to do what he had to do you know and as i said for the music if your if your passion is to create you have to give up everything and everybody if that's what it takes in order to get to where you need to be. And he did it. Good for him. And what's weird is that when he died, what was it, five, six years ago? I already forgotten. Uh, you know, I couldn't believe that the people were saying, oh, it's so dreadful, you know, the world's come to the end. People who had never even met him were saying, this is awful and, you know, I'm going to go out and kill myself. But it wasn't awful. You know, he did what every musician dreams of. He bought out a new album three days before his death. He managed to stage manage his end game. Even then, was done wonderfully. So, hats off to him. Good for him. 
Do you have a memory of David that always makes you laugh? Uh, um, yeah, I've got a few kind of freeze frames in my head. I mean, he used to look at himself quite a lot in the mirror. I can remember once him just sort of standing naked looking at himself in the mirror and then sort of looking at his back. He was very worried that the lower bit of his spine was slightly protruding and he was thinking he was going to grow Lucifer's tail. The devil's tail was going to grow out of the, low, <laughs> the lower cockets of his back. I mean, don't forget, he'd probably been awake for a week then, might have been somewhat <laughs> rambling. But... Um, you know, there were a lot of times when it was just fun to hang out with him. But, it, you know, these are early days. And I, I, I can't say that I wish I could talk more about the other times of his life because I don't indulge in wishful thinking. But I'm sure, you know, he had some marvellous times. But, I, 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 you know, he had some great musicians so uh, with him as well. And I was lucky enough to work some nights with Michael Kamen, who's sadly no longer on this planet with us, or Earl Slick, his guitarist. And so, yeah, seeing him on stage was one thing, but just hanging out with him as a person, was he was just like any other fellow. I mean, I went with him and DeFries, the three of us went to Glastonbury. I think it was the second time Glastonbury had ever existed, and I can't remember what year it was, maybe 73? And uh, I can see him now. Angie had dressed him in these strange, wide, baggy Oxford bags. Of course, typical British weather. Um, DeFries had known straight away that he wasn't going to be in a tent, so he'd booked himself a hotel room. But, <laughs> but David was sort of wanting to be independent on this. And when we get to the station, we went by train. I mean, with him with his guitar. It was just him on his own carrying his guitar. And... Uh, there was no transport to get from the station to the actual venue. We had to walk about three miles um, in the hot sun because it was sunny at that point. Him and he had a big floppy hat on. We get to the massive area of Glastonbury, which was not as massive crowd-wise as it is now. And there was that huge silver pyramid that they performed in. It had just been erected and... He was due to perform at, let's say, it was about 7 o'clock at night. By 11 o'clock at night, he still wasn't on because the sound had problems. And, of course, um, it, also, it also meant that half the people on, on the stage, you know, the workers and the sound guys and everything, everyone was on acid. The amazing inner thing kind of ever got uh, on. So rather than miss the event, David sort of stayed up all night or hung out in somebody's tent. I went and slept in DeFries' uh, room in, in the hotel. And so David was told, oh, well, the only slot we've got that you can go on stage is at five in the morning. He said, I'll take it. So he comes out and he's singing his lineup of songs. And when he gets to that line, the sun machine is coming down, we're going to have a party, yeah, yeah. At that point, the sun was just coming over and it hit the silver pyramid. And it was truly magical. The people were crawling out of their tents, covered with mud, thinking, what the fuck's on stage at this hour? And there was this one solo guy with his yellow hair up on the stage, strumming away. Magical. Totally lovely and magical. You couldn't, you couldn't write a sort of scenario like that. Well, speaking of writing these amazing scenarios, you just finished your memoir, Weren't Born a Man. That's such a huge achievement. It has to be such a great feeling sharing all these stories with fans. One of the things that I'm very proud of in the book, first of all, I'm proud that it, it's even out because um, people don't seem to realize that I've actually made 70 albums and I've just finished my 71st and I'm about to start in 10 days time my 72nd album this is what I do I make albums I'm I make recordings but I haven't really been blessed with um timing in as much as maybe I had one album and I had an album out called um, methods of release I had the drummer simple mind the bass player from Pink Floyd the second guitarist from Pink Floyd I mean amazing people and literally the week the album came out, the record company kind of folded. These things have happened to me a lot. But I've always felt that probably I'll have to die for anyone actually gets to hear all the music I did. But I was so lucky. 
I was there at the best of the times when it was honorable to be a musician. And now you can have a hit record, but six months later, nobody even knows who you are. And you don't get second chances. You did have chances in those days because not so many people were doing what I was doing. I was lucky. Plus, that again, I was lucky enough to be a good-looking chick in a time when, you know, people did care about looks. And I learned very early on that if you had your top button and your shirt undone, then you're going to get in the newspapers. One didn't have to be wearing nothing a la Miley Cyrus or these days people just have to be dressed in dental floss and you're away. But we had different values in those days. And if you wanted something, if you wanted you had to save up for your latest single or your latest LP. And nobody would have given a shit and be seen dead in something like a pair of trainers. I mean, that's low life as far as I'm concerned. So values have changed and I'm quite happy to be old school. And I, I wrote a song on my last album called Under My Bed and it's called Old School and it definitely sums up how I feel about life because I was at the best of times. It really was. The 60s and 70s were fabulous. Wouldn't swap it for anything. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.